Open up your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4, 1 Peter chapter 4, pull out the message note sheet. Uh, those of you online, your host can direct you on how to get the message show. Those of you in the room here, if you take your phone and scan the QR code in the chair nearest you there, it'll pop up uh, a link for you to get the message notes. It'll be super helpful if you have access to those as we're going through this. Let me frame the new series that we're starting today. Would you... It's not an understatement to say that 2020 is intense. This is an intense time that we're living. Would you agree with me? It's an intense year, intense circumstances, right? A global pandemic is intense to live through. Combined with the uh, social and racial injustice that's surfacing all through our land, it's an intense time. Combined with the economic uncertainty and the unemployment figures, it's in intense around all of these things. These are intense days, intense times, and then you throw in the political environment and upcoming election that's filled with intensity. It feels like there's so much at stake. And so here's the, here's the, the call into this series is that I believe God is calling out to his people to say, the intensity of our prayers must surpass the intensity of the times in which we're living. And so we're going to go on a journey starting today in a consistent call to do just that. What does it mean for the people of God to match the intensity of these times? We don't need to spend a lot of discussion about how intense the circum. We all know we're living in the midst of it, but here's the call. Here's what we need to look at. What does it mean as a follower of Jesus to match the intensity or surpass the intensity of our times with the intensity of our praying? And believe God can and will do something in these days that we could have never imagined. And so this is what 1 Peter 4 is getting at. Here's how Peter puts it. He says, the end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. Four very straightforward takeaways from these two sentences and this one verse. The first one, notice the first sentence, the end of all things is near. The first principle I wrote down is we've got to adjust to the true crisis that we're in. Church, we're in a true crisis. But listen, the crisis isn't ultimately a health crisis, as significant as a pandemic is. The crisis isn't an economic crisis, as significant as all the ripple effect of job loss and economic uncertainty is. The crisis is at its core, spiritual and eternal. It's not even political, as significant as the election cycle is. The true crisis we're in is an eternal one. It's a spiritual one. Do we believe that, that the deepest crisis we're in is spiritual? And as important as it is as a nation, we've been receiving guidance from all these experts across all these months, and it's important to have our medical experts. We're grateful for all that you're doing and all the ways you're serving in our communities. But as important as as medical experts have, and we've got civic government leadership experts that we've had, we've got all the sociologists giving cultural commentary and all that. Those are all important and all necessary. 
But I think equally important, or perhaps could I say with Peter here, more important than that is where is the voice in our culture and in our land that says the true crisis of the day is eternal? Where's the voice that says we as a nation must seek God? Where's that voice? Well, I believe the church is responsible. This is today. As God's people gather all around the nation, all around the world, this is the voice we must lift up. Right now, we must seek God. We must turn our hearts to Him. We must look to Him. That's the true crisis of our day. It's eternal and spiritual. Do you believe that with me? That there's an eternal crisis? Do you believe that our current realities that we're living in, as difficult as they all are physically, we can't even remember what it was like to live pre-2020. But as difficult as our current physical reality, do we realize that current has an end date? Do we believe that? Peter says the end of all things is near. Translated, this current reality is coming to an end. Do we believe that? Do we believe that all the injustices marching about our streets, do we believe that all of that, the darkness and the evil and the, everything that's surfacing that said, that's not right, do we believe that that's going to come to an end someday? Evil has an end date. Injustice has an end date. Pandemics have an end date. Our physical life as we know it here on earth has an end date. That current is not eternal. And man, if we've ever needed an encouragement on a year like, hallelujah. That current is not eternal. There's a change coming. The end of all things is near. The way things are right now is not the way they're always going to be. It, re it reminds me of, um, I started thinking about this in like the sporting world. So here's, here's what the analogy, I think, if, if Peter were to throw a sporting analogy into his first sentence, it might go something like this. Church, the time on the clock dictates the play on the field. So in the Colts world and Colts organization, I get sometimes to glance at Coach Reich's call sheet. Have you ever looked at the NFL sidelines and you see whoever's calling the plays, you see their call sheet and you look at it and it looks like Greek and it's super small font and all that stuff? Do you know there's a whole section on the call sheet that's the two-minute. There's whole practice sessions in the NFL that are devoted to two-minute. Two-minute what? Last two minutes of the halves. Last two minutes for halftime. Last two minutes of the game. When there's two minutes or less on the clock, do you know what that clicks in? That says to the coaches, there are certain formations they call. There are certain personnel packages. There are certain plays you run when the game is on the line that you wouldn't run at other times. The time on the clock dictates the play on the field. You following me with this? And I think Peter is saying to us as a church, I think he's saying, hey, we're kind of like, it's easy for us to live as if we're just first quarter, second quarter, halftime. We're like rolling around like it's halftime. We're just kind of scrolling through our phones and looking through our news feeds and distracted and all this stuff. And I'm just like with all of you. We just, and, and it's like, wait a minute. It's fourth quarter. It's two minutes. The time on the clock dictates the play on the field. We can't be rolling around like it's first quarter, second quarter, halftime. And I confess to you, church, that I know deep down the true crisis is eternal, 
but I don't live wholeheartedly as, the, as if that's the truth. I get distracted and caught up in the here and now of all the things of this world. The things of the world get a hold of me in some way, and I lose sight of this frame of reference that Peter is calling us into, which is an eternal frame of reference. It's like, I put the quote in your notes, it's like what Jonathan Edwards said. I love his prayer. He said, Lord, stamp eternity on my eyeballs. Wow, how about that prayer? Lord, stamp eternity on my eyeballs. If we get the frame of reference that eternity becomes the grid in which we're living, that if we look at the clock and say, it's eternal, it's two minutes, it's drive, it's the game-winning drive, it's going to change the play on the field. And I think right now we've got to own together as the body of Christ that our true crisis isn't physical, it's not economic, it's not political, it's spiritual and eternal. Lord, stamp eternity on our eyeballs. We've got to have this frame of reference. And if we get a hold of it, it'll change the play on the field. It changes it. Specifically, how? Well, three things, he says. This is what's going to happen. If you get eternity stamped on your eyeballs, if you grasp the end of all things is near, you live in an eternal framework, then Peter says what? Be alert. The translation of be alert there is, this is what it literally means. Keep your wits about you. Be alert. In other words, don't get like swept up and lulled to sleep. Don't just drift off. Don't just get distracted and kind of caught up in all these other things. Be alert. Like kind of a, a wake up. What Paul said to the church at Ephesus, wake up, O sleeper, rise from the dead that Christ might shine on you. It's that. Be alert. If eternity is our framework, and listen to the guy who's writing this. Can you think of us time and Peter's life, those of you who know your New Testaments well, you might remember a time in Peter's life where he wasn't so alert. Matthew 26, Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus is saying, he gets his closest friends together. And he says, Peter, he's one of the guys, Peter, I need you to keep watch and pray. I need you to be alert. I need you to pray me through what I'm going to be going through. Peter's like, I got you. I got you. Jesus rolls off, comes back. Peter's sound asleep. Anybody been there? I'm amazed at the slobber puddle I can develop in my praying. I have this kneeling posture, and I didn't think I could fall asleep kneeling. I've gotten quite good at it. That's not encouraging. Peter's like got this slobber puddle going on. He's sound asleep. Jesus comes back and says, yo, I need you to stay, be alert. Hey, you can't drift off to sleep. There's too much at stake here. Two minutes on the clock. The time is near. The, the crisis is eternal. It's got to change the play on the field. Pray. Peter, I need you to pray. I got you, got you, Jesus. Jesus rolls off again, comes back. Sound asleep again. Maybe a little bit bigger puddle. I don't know. And I think, I suspect Peter's sentence right here is hearkening back to the time. He's like, man, he's probably going, I wonder what all I missed out on when I went to sleep in the Garden of Gethsemane. Just think about, oh, if he would have just stayed awake and, and stayed alert and, and, and captured that moment. Instead, he drifted off to sleep. And I think Peter's saying, no, I can't, I can't do that. The end of all things is near. The true crisis is eternal. I got to keep my wits about me. 
I can't just roll over and go to sleep. I can't get distracted and caught up on the things of the here and now. The new framework is eternal. Stamp eternity on my eyeballs, Lord. I've got eternity on my eyeballs. And now, Peter, he's, he's a little bit different kind of a man here in writing this letter. Say, I got to stay alert. I think that's the call to us today. We got, church, we got to rise up with an alertness of spirit. This is not a time for casual distraction. The intensity of this time doesn't allow for that. We don't get that luxury. This isn't a time to coast at all. This is a time to be alert. This isn't first quarter. This isn't second quarter. This isn't halftime. This is fourth quarter, two-minute, game-winning drive. It changes the call on the field. It changes the formation. It changes the play. It changes the intensity. And that's the call to the people of God today. Oh yeah, be alert. And then what else does he say? Be of sober mind. Now, that's not language we use very often, right? When's the last time you said to a friend, hey, how you doing these days? And the friend says, oh, I'm just working on being sober-minded. That's super weird. Sober-minded, like, like what is that? That's not a quality that we talk a lot about, but we really appreciate it in others. The word sober-minded, it means this quality of having a, a sound judgment. I put in your notes, I think, there. It has a, an issue of self-control, a calm and collected spirit. The opposite of sober-mindedness would be a frenzied and frantic state. That's the opposite. Here's a picture of the opposite. Go to Mark 5 this week and read the story of when this demon-possessed guy was so out of control and so frenzied and so frantic that they had to chain him up. And when he'd bust the chains and he'd strip the clothes off his body and he'd find these sharp rocks and he'd cut himself. This was this demon-possessed guy. Jesus finds out about this. He goes to this demon-possessed guy. He goes to this cave. He goes to the area of the chains. And it says that Jesus healed this guy. And here's what the text says. That this man, after meeting Jesus, was clothed and in his right mind. Same word, sober-minded. The transition from frenzied and frantic to sober-mindedness, a calm and collected spirit, a spirit that has sound judgment to it, someone who's in their right mind in light of the circumstances. Do you see Peter saying, hey, in light of the frame of reference being eternity stamped on our eyeballs, we've got to be alert, and it's a call to sound judgment, to sober-mindedness. There's a really well-known book written today. Some of you may have read it. It's called The Coddling of the American Mind. Here's a picture of the cover of the book. Super smart authors, a sociology, a socio, social psychologist, and an attorney. They combine. They put their wisdom together. It's like, I think, bestseller for many, many weeks. I think 2018 it was written. So here's one of the kind of the key theses of the book. They're saying today that college students are being sold three great untruths. So this is super encouraging, parents. All those checks you're writing to college, here's what they're being sold. Feelings are always right. They should avoid pain and discomfort. They should look for faults in others and not in themselves. Now, Ted, just keep that slide up there a minute because we all just need to... Inter so these are studies being done saying these are three great untruths that are being sold position to all of our young people going through a college education these days. Feelings are always right. They should avoid pain and discomfort and look for faults in others and not themselves. 
Hmm. Do you think discipleship to Jesus has any counterformation to that? We have to have counterformation to the coddling of the American mind. It got me thinking about a book that maybe should be written. The coddling of the American Christian. I wonder what that would say. I wonder what the commentary would be uh, on the coddling of us followers of Jesus in North American suburban culture for the last couple hundred years. I wonder what commentary might be given. I suspect Peter might say, hey, we got to get a new frame of reference. We got to get eternity stamped on our eyeballs. We've got to get the temporal, the temporal, the things of this world are just too important. They got to shift down. The things of eternity got to shift up. We got to be alert. We got to recognize it's two minutes, it's game winning drive. And we got to have sober mindedness. We got to have a sound judgment. We got to have a calm and collected spirit that says, in light of the circumstances we're in, in light of the times that we're living, here's how we respond. And man, if there's ever a time in our lifetime, the next couple of months in our culture, I think the body of Christ could give a great gift to our world if we banded together and said, we're going to operate with sober-mindedness over these next 60 days. Can you imagine the gift we might give our world if we actually operated with a calm and collected spirit? Not frenzied and freaking out about whatever's happening in the election cycle. However all that comes down, that we're not panicking, that with sober-mindedness, using the mind God's given us, applying good judgment to our decisions, we make decisions on our election cycle. And the body of Christ bands together and puts trust in God through the whole process. What might happen? I suspect the Facebook dialogues would change a little bit. I suspect some of the posts might change a little bit. I suspect the amount of words might shrink back a little bit, or certainly the tone of them. So I'm calling us together to a season of alertness of mind and soberness of spirit to apply sound judgment a, with a calm and collected wisdom. That's what the body of Christ needs to rise up and do right now. We need to give that gift to the world. And remember, in Peter's day, lest we think Peter just had it on easy street, he's trying to follow Jesus and build Jesus' church in the Roman Empire, whose number one agenda at that point concerning the church of Jesus was shut it down, arrest its leaders, execute them. So they were in a really difficult set of circumstances. And Peter calls out to the body of Christ and says, hey, we got to be alert, no time to go to sleep, and we got to apply a sober-mindedness to our response right now because we want eternity stamped on our eyeballs in this way. And all of that leads to a so that. So that what? What's the verse say? So it says what? Say, therefore, be alert and have sober mind so that, and underline in your Bibles, you may what? Pray. Say that with me. Pray. So that you may pray. That's the big so that in the verse. Peter's like, all the actions he's calling us to is that so that you may pray. Pray. Ephesians 6.18 says it this way, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers. Notice kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying. Boy, it sounds a lot like Paul and Peter might have had a similar spirit there, right? Be alert, pray, all kinds of prayers. 
And church, I have sensed for the last couple of months, I've just recently shared it with the staff and then this past week with the elders, I have sensed for the last couple of months a growing burden from the Spirit to get to this moment, to stand before you as God's people, and to call us to prayer. A call to prayer. And not just, I don't want you to think, well, Pastor Eric, I am praying. I know you're a praying people. I know you are. We've got evidence all around this church of amazing praying people around here. This is a different kind of call to prayer. All right, there's, there's certain kinds of prayer that are like, I call them conversational prayer, important in our everyday life with Jesus. Devotional prayer, important where we thank God for the gifts he gives us each day. We thank him for the food he puts on the table. We thank him for our family and our friends. Important, necessary part of cultivating our walk with Jesus, the kind of devotional, conversational prayer. And then there's this call to prayer today that I'm issuing. It's a call to cry out to God. You know, there's a different kind. The Bible talks about crying out, where we raise our voice and we release our cry. That's this. I thought about when Kendra and I used to take the girls when they were young to Lions Park, and they'd play on all the playground equipment. Back when kids could play on playground equipment, you know, and all that stuff, and do it with all their friends and all that. Remember that? Well, that happened back at Lions Park days. And there'd be all kinds of kids running around and playing, and, and Kendra and I would have our ears turned to the girls' voices in such a way, you know, parents, you know when to respond, right? There's certain, like, if they couldn't quite get up the stairs a certain way, or they need a little help down the slide, there's a certain kind of kind of calling out to mom and dad there that you need help. And then we might be sitting on the bench somewhere and, and chatting about something and the girls are playing and then there's the sound. Mom, dad, you know the sound? The sound when the little one cries out, right? It hits, it hits a different category where you know, drop whatever you're doing and run towards your child. That's the crying out. That's this. That's what that's what the intensity of our times warrants today. This is a call beyond devotional praying. This is a call to match the intensity of the times we're in with the intensity of our praying. This is a call to join Jesus in how he prayed. Here's how Hebrews 5 says Jesus prayed. You, this is an amazing verse. Have you ever looked at this? Hebrews 5 verse 7 says, During the days of Jesus' life on earth. Check this out. He offered up prayers and petitions with what? Loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. He was heard because of his reverent submission. Do you see that? So this is a call to join Jesus. That with reverent submission, we lift up our cries. We raise our voice and release our cry. Did we say, God, stamp eternity on our eyeballs? I got to be alert. There's an alertness of mind and a soberness of spirit I have to have to enter into this space and to cry out to the living God for him to break through and break in in ways that these times warrant. This is the call. It's a 40-day call that begins next Sunday. I'm giving you seven days to kind of wrap your hearts and minds around this with me, all right? So we get seven days to kind of figure out how this is gonna look in your household. We're gonna officially begin the 40-day run starting on the 27th of September. 
And then if you run the calendar out 40 days, that takes us right through election week. I suspect as we get increasingly close to that week, I suspect we'll find an increasing burden to be in the posture of on our knees and on our face before God. And it's a call not just to praying, it's a call to fasting and prayer. That's the leading from the Lord. To call you as a body to a season of fasting and prayer. And I know some of you right now are like, oh, I hate fasting. I, I get it. It's one of the hardest disciplines of the Christian life. But there seems to be something really significant in the word between when God's people combine a fasting and a praying together. The intensity of our times warrants a call to fast and pray. And so that's what we're going to do for 40 days, even if you've never fasted before. I'll get into teaching on this some more in the weeks ahead, but a biblical fast has to do with food. So think about your seven-day cycle of a week. Think about some places where you can say no to food, and then you repurpose that time and cry out to God with reverent submission. That's the core of a biblical fast. And students, I want to encourage you into this. And then mom and dad, I want to encourage you to involve the kids in this. Age-appropriate ways, figure it out together. But kids can participate with us in this. There's ways they can fast and pray and cry out to God. And this will be a whole family unit. For 40 days, we're going to get in this rhythm together. We're going to hit our knees and hit our face, and we're going to cry out to God because the time on the clock dictates this play on the field. The intensity of the times that we're living warrants his people hitting their knees and hitting their face and with reverent submission, raising their voice and releasing their cry and say, God, we need you to break in and break through. There's stuff we're dealing with personally, and there's stuff we're dealing with collectively as a nation that it's clear the hand of the Lord has to move in power. We're at the end of the wisdom and strength of human beings, which if I understand this book correct, is usually right on the cusp of a mighty move of God to do something. And the gap between is this call, to call the people to fervent, prevailing prayer, to fast and pray and call out to God. One final image, and then I'll close today. Do you know what the driest place on earth is? Here's a picture of the driest place on earth. I didn't know about it until I was reading about the last few weeks. The Atacama Desert. Do you know where it is in Chile? You wouldn't go visit it because that's what it looks like. NASA uses the Atacama Desert to study Mars. That'd be super inspiring. Let's take a vacation to the Atacama Desert. <laughs> There's nothing there. It's barren. It's abundantly dry. It went 173 months without one drop of moisture. If you do the math, that's over 14 years. Without one drop. But Atacama Desert in Chile, March of 2015, something happened. 14 years worth of rain fell in one day. At the Atacama Desert, March of 2015. You can Google it and look it up. 14, now, now to think, well, that was a, don't think like Pensacola, Florida this week, level of rain. Like 14 years worth of rain, Atacama Desert was one inch. One inch of rain fell in one day. The next day, here's what the Atacama Desert looked like. Just focus on that a minute. That's a field of wildflowers. The communities around the Atacama Desert, they didn't believe it. 
they started calling all their neighbors and friends. And if you Google and you, you'll find kids out running in the flowers and in the path of this field. They were running through the Atacama Desert that previously was barren and deserted and lifeless. And now it had sprung to life. When I read about this, you know, you know where I'm going with this, right? Church, do I need to give much more commentary on the current spiritual climate of North America? It's the former picture. It's been over 200 years since we've seen revival and awakening come to our land in a way. 200 years. 200 years where we've been mostly distracted, mostly preoccupied, mostly exalting self, mostly pushing God increasingly to the margins. 200 years where it looks barren, it looks dry, it looks lifeless. But here's what the scientists figured out about the Atacama. Here's what blew them all away. They didn't realize underneath all that barrenness and all that sand and all that apparent lifelessness, here's what they didn't know. There were millions and millions of seeds. There were seeds under there. And on March of 2015, 14 years worth of rain hit the seeds and sprang to life. And so church, I want you to join me in believing this. Could it not be that for such a time as this, we can unite our voices, raise our voice, release our cry, and say, God, send the rain of your spirit in such a way that 14 years worth of life springs to life in one day. Amen. That's the call to prayer. That right there, church, right there. Do you believe, do you believe that's still possible in our land and in our day? I believe it because of who God is, not because of who we are. I believe we desperately need it. Without the reign of his spirit, we've got no shot to see that kind of response. No shot. It doesn't matter what happens with the election cycle. Church, we can't put our hope in who's establishing whatever government office. How many times a body of Christ has to learn this? Peter had Herod, Pontius Pilate, and Caesar running the show back then. That didn't seem to stop and thwart what he wanted to see going on. Why are we going to crawl in a hole and put our head down? Huh? We got to rise up and believe that there is a sovereign Lord who's the capital K king of all the small K kings of the earth. And I'm holding on to this as we look towards November's election. Here's what you hold on to, Proverbs 21.1. The kings of the earth belong to the Lord. And he directs their heart like a water course wherever he pleases. You unite your voice and you lift up your cry and you join me in that. That God's purposes will prevail. Whatever happens in that election cycle, it's not going to stop the purposes of God. And that's not where our hope rests. Our hope rests on the King of kings and the Lord of lords. The sovereign Lord that Peter's referring to. He says, church, look at the time on the clock. It's two-minute warning. It's game-winning drive. It dictates the play on the field. We got to wake up. We got to be alert. 
We can't just be casually going around. We can't be distracted. We can't be caught up in all this stuff. Maybe downscale some time on the screen and social media and flipping through this and that. Maybe we downscale some of that. And with soberness of mind, we hit our knees and we hit our face and we raise our voice and we release our cry and we believe God can send 14 years worth of the reign of his spirit in one day that we believe it. We want it. That's our hope, church. And so it's a call to 40 days of fasting and prayer. The church word and the church term for this is we're praying for awakening. We're praying for revival. We're praying for renewal. This is way beyond devotional prayer stuff. This is a cry out to God. It says, turn the Atacama Desert into a field of wildflowers that our land hasn't seen for 200 years. Why not us? Why not now? Let's pray together. Father, these are intense times we're living in. And I know many of us today, we're just kind of physically, mentally, emotionally, we're exhausted. It's, it's just exhausting to live everyday life today because it's just so intense what we're all dealing with. And I pray that today you just collectively lift up our eyes and, and reframe our reference point and stamp eternity on our eyeballs. Would you just kind of loosen the grip of the here and now and the temporary? Would you awaken us to the eternal? And by the Holy Spirit, would you stir us to an alertness, an alertness of spirit and a soberness of mind? We just can't keep doing life as we've all been doing at the, these times. We gotta shift, we gotta change. God, stir it up in our hearts. It's gotta be different. If not our generation, for the sake of the generations coming, it's got to be different, oh God. So with an alertness of spirit and with a soberness of mind, call us to prayer. Call us to fast and pray. To raise our voice and release our cry. Bring revival, bring renewal, bring awakening. Start with me. Start with us. Send the rain of your spirit. We desperately need you. join the disciples and say, Jesus, teach us to pray. Teach us to pray during these days. By the Spirit, teach us to pray, to call out to you in ways that you want us to call out. So with open hearts and open hands, we enter in. In Jesus' name.